Hey there, Andy Jenkins here, sitting in the attic, third floor, and coming back at you with another little talk here from, really for the last couple episodes, I've been going through this book of Exodus and kind of countermeasuring it, counterpunching it, counter uh, sinking it, cross-referencing it, all, all those type things with the cross, because the New Testament tells us that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are redeemed. We are, we've learned that word means set free. And we've learned that because there's this principle called the law of first mention that we come to. And the law of first mention always says, in order to really understand a word or a concept or a phrase, an idea, to understand that, you've got to go back to the first time that you see that referenced even in the scripture. And so this law of first mention says and teaches us that anytime we see the concept of redemption in the New Testament, we go back to the first time we see that in the Bible as a whole. And that takes us to the book of Exodus. That takes us particularly to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, where God tells Moses, he says, I will, I will, future tense, I will redeem my people from the hand of Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to do it with mighty acts of judgment. Now, uh, we look in a few chapters later and we see in Exodus 15, We see Miriam, that's Moses' big sister. Miriam gets up and she just proclaims as the children of Israel walk through the Red Sea into freedom. As they're coming into freedom, she says, these are the people. This is just the lyrics to a song. These are your children, God, the ones whom you have. And there it is, past tense, the ones you have redeemed. And so we look at the idea of redemption in the New Testament, and it ties us back to this idea of the story of Exodus, that we are freed from bondage. We are freed from being shackled. We are freed from being held down. We read a lot of times in the New Testament things like, it's for freedom Christ set you free, or if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Um, we, We read things like that. And we so often, we really just kind of contemplate, well, what, what does that mean? What, what, well, how do we apply that? What, what do we do with information like that? And a safe place to go is to look at the book of Exodus and see everything those people were redeemed for. And when you see that, you see that as the topic of this podcast episode is, you see that we are redeemed and redemption is far bigger and it is incredibly, incredibly much better much better than you and I have imagined possible. So, by the way, before I get too far, that that was a long intro, wasn't it? That was kind of a, a, let me tell you what I'm going to talk about, and then let me just get into it and keep talking. Uh, Let me remind you, and I'm going to put the link in the show notes right here below, that there is an absolutely, totally free ebook that you can get related to this. And uh, there is a, I, I shot a short three, four video series a couple weeks ago on Facebook that was kind of related to this. I, I was going on to teach a healing workshop and I'd been in the middle of studying and finishing up the edits on the book. And as I was finishing those, I kind of got talking that night and it seemed like everything just steered towards, everything just steered towards talking about redemption and uh, particularly how that relates to to he- healing, to physical healing and of course that that spills over to emotional and that spills over to anytime you're talking about that you have to deal with the soul and you have to deal with the mind and you have to deal with every other part of us you know we're we're not disconnected people right and and there I don't know if you can hear it there there comes my train and uh, the added bonus today is a siren every time I get on the podcast and start recording you know there it is but that, that's what you do when you work from home and you're not really 
intentionally not using a soundproof room. You're just kind of um, just sitting here on, on my desk overlooking the backyard and all the kids and everything else that's going on here. So anyway, the ebook is there totally free. And I, I will put the link to that in the show notes. And I'll also put the link to that video series where you can look at that, access it, leverage it uh, completely free. It'll track, it'll tell you a little bit of the information. You're getting way more information uh, in the podcast than you are on the video, but that's a different format. And you'll get way more information in the book than you'll get from from just the podcast, though sometimes it's easier to listen on the go. So, so back to the idea of redemption being bigger and being better than you and I have imagined. So when I'm looking at the story of Exodus, here's, here's the things I see is I see a people who were brought out of slavery, and I see a people who were, as they left, their will was free. As slaves, they had no self-determination. They had no ability to choose anything on their own. They were just, you get up and you do what you are demanded, commanded to do. They had no authority. They had no right to go wherever they wanted to. The, the work of their hands was not something that was going to prosper them. It wasn't an abundance for them. It was to serve. It was the toil that was placed upon them by Pharaoh. They they were beaten down physically while they were in slavery, so much so that the book of Psalms says that when they went out, they went out with much joy not despair, and there wasn't a feeble one, there wasn't a sick, there wasn't an unwell person among them. And these are all ideas that over the next few weeks, I want to kind of pull out like piece by piece by piece and bit by bit by bit, because my assessment is, as we're looking through the New Testament, if the New Testament is a better covenant, which Hebrews says that it is, Hebrews says that the New Testament is a better covenant, it's founded on better promises, it has a better priesthood, it's not passing away, whereas it says the Old Covenant is passing away, that law is passing away. It's not that the Old Testament ideas aren't beneficial and don't always reveal Jesus to us and don't always have this measure of grace going through them. It's just the way we relate to God is not based on the rules. It never should have been. The way we relate to God is based on the relationship as a father-son, father-daughter. As a The New Testament uses the concept of you're being brought into the family of God. He takes the lonely, Psalm 68 says, and he sets them in families and he, he pulls them into to his household, you know, and, and there's something that the Bible drives us to uh, with this idea of family where we understand God as father, right? And, and uh, th- there's something where fathers on the world, they kind of have that in that role. They're, they're taking on that, that, that kind of, um, there's lessons that we see, which I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about today. Um, and we're brought into that family of God and, and that new covenant where we're brought into a family and we relate based on family is a better covenant. It's, it's not one based on rule and if then, and I'm, I'm going to be authoritative over you. It's, it's as human fathers are supposed to be where there's grace and there's empowerment and there's calling forth identity and there's releasing into, into destiny. And, you know, I think about that even with my kids, with my sons, with my daughters, you know, my, my goal as a parent is not to raise them to be perpetual uh, toddlers or perpetual uh, elementary kids or perpetual teens. We, we have all of those now. My, my goal, my wife's goal, Christy's goal is to raise these kids to be peers of ours. 
Now, I'm certainly not saying that God, when he relates to us, wants to raise us to, to be a, a peer of his, but there is this element where he wants us to walk out in this empowerment, and in this role, and in this destiny, you know, that where literally we are, as Peter says, a kingdom of priests, and Jesus uh, relates to his disciples, and he says, hey, I, I, don't, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Like, there's this relational thing that is such an integrated connectiveness under the new covenant, which is exactly is exactly what we're called to. And so consequently, when you, when you look at when you look at the Exodus story, you start seeing glimpses and you start seeing pieces of this relationship. Now here's one of the ways where I, I see it and, and here's one of the ways where it just kind of leaps off the page to me. When God first revealed himself to Moses. When he first revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is there, he's at the burning bush. God came up to Moses through the burning bush. And um, in fact, there's this, there's this rabbinical tradition that says something like this, that the bush had been burning for a while. And, and we don't know if that's true or if this is just an idea, but, but it, it, it does have an element um, that you'll see that is, um, lends me to think that, hey, this is a great, this is a great thought. This is, this is maybe how God does relate to us. This is maybe how things really are. There's this rabbinical tradition that says something like this. It says that the bush had been burning for a while. And it wasn't that Moses is there and God starts stalking and he just catches his attention. And all of a sudden just, you know, it's, and if you read the scripture, it says that the bush was burning and Moses suddenly, he paid attention. It's like he stopped what he was doing and he stopped and he turned aside and he looked in and it says as he looked in and went in closer, as he went in closer, then, then the Lord spoke. And and when the Lord spoke his name, it was this, it it wasn't this huge, overwhelming, all-powerful, loud speaker of a name. It was... It, it was he said his name, which was uh, some people translated as Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, uh, it would be kind of the Greek translation of that. Um, in the Hebrew language, it's it's just a yod, it's a hey, it's a ba, and a hey. That's their alphabetical letters right there, and they're only consonants. There's no there's no vowel there, so you kind of have to supply it, and and you really can't. You really can't pronounce it. Like the name of God is unpronounceable. Now, a lot of people would think that uh, back then, religious people wouldn't say the name of God because they were out of reverence for it, not wanting to say it with impure lips or say it in an impure way or say it in a way that would taint it, pollute it. I mean, goodness. I mean, you know, that's a well, it's a well-intended honoring stance to take. I mean, especially today when so many. Foul words are just thrown around with with anyone's name, but particularly with the name of God. I, I think it's honoring that people would take that stance back then. However, I think that it's not necessarily that it was just out of honor that they didn't say the name of God. It's that you can't actually pronounce that name. And so when God talks to Moses and he reveals who he is, he he reveals himself in two different type name ways in Exodus chapter three. One way is one way is this. The Lord the Lord tells him, He says, What what is your name? The Lord tells him, He says, My name is, is I say it's Yahweh. Um, it's actually the Yod Hey Vah Hey, which is the Yod is the Yah. 
that's how you pronounce it. The hey is kind of a, I don't even know if you can hear that very well. The va, the third letter of a four-letter name is v, v, and then another yava, yava. Uh, I'll say it again. It's yava, right? Can you hear that? Yava. It's so quiet. It's so silent that to even hear it, you have to come in close. Now, in that culture, people thought that if you knew someone's name, that you had control over them. Like you, you um, not not control in a bad way, but you you really understood who they were. Like you had a glimpse of what they were like. In fact, in a previous episode, I said, you know, Jesus was named Jesus Yeshua. That name means salvation. He is named salvation because he does salvation. To know someone's name was to know exactly what they were like. It was to know who they are. That's why Jesus um, and God, God actually a lot of times changed people's names. You know, in the New Testament, we read that Simon Peter, uh, his name to begin with is, is Simon. It means reed, twig, shifting sand. It means flimsy. And, and you get the idea that he, he is kind of, in the beginning, flimsy. You know, he's one that um, would would say to Jesus, hey, uh, even if everybody backs away from you, even if everybody bails out, I will not deny you. I won't deny you. And then just within 24 hours, okay, less than that, within 12 hours before the cock crows three times, he's cursing, he's swearing, um, even to teenage girls, to young women, that he has no idea who Jesus is. Okay, that doesn't seem like rock, which is what... Peter means, that seems like shifting sand. Simon, but Jesus is changing his name because he's saying, hey, there's something about this word that's going to impart and label and identify to where we're going to know exactly who you are, which is a rock. And you do see that throughout the New Testament as he continues walking in his role and walking in that destiny in Acts chapter one. He's the one that stands up uh, at Pentecost, um, before Pentecost, and they select a new uh, apostle. And then he is the one at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls. After they do that, he stands up and preaches this message and 3,000 people come to faith. He is the one that uh, really in large part helps the gospel, the message of grace, go to um, the Gentiles when he goes uh, to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10. Like There is this measure in him that used to be shifting sand, but then he becomes rock. Okay, And to understand his name was to understand exactly what he's like. So when God says a name that is that is quiet, that you can't really grasp that you can't really wrap your head around. It's it's like in some sense, he's almost showing, he's almost saying, he's almost displaying and demonstrating that, that, hey, you can't really comprehend all of this. You can't really understand all of this. There's so much more to it. You, You can't just reduce it to, I'm a rock. You can't just reduce it to, I save. You can't just reduce it to just fill in the blank. Uh, you know, and this is why I think all throughout the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament, we see so many names given to God and so many names given to Jesus. You know, God is the healer, is the provider, you know, is, is El Shaddai, is the banner, is the warrior, is the one who fights for his people. You know, over and over, just dozens of names given to God so that we could understand pieces of him. 
We, we couldn't grasp it all at one time. In the New Testament, you see things like Jesus being the good shepherd, Jesus being the light, Jesus being the door, Jesus being the bread of life. You know, all throughout the story, we continue getting more glimpses whereby we can understand. And it's that first revelation to Moses of the, I'm going to pronounce it again, Yahweh. That kind of shows us you can't boil it down, you can't nail it down, you can't put it in, you can't put it in common simple language. You can't, you can't understand it all with just a word. It's bigger, and it's better than that. And and here's the big idea for me too. Here's something that I, I see, sense, and feel from it. The more I think about it, is that, is that yeah, to really understand God, you you can't get that from a textbook. You, you can't get that from living someone else's story or just hearing their story. And, and their story can be powerful and their story can help build faith in you. Their story can help faith rise in you because you all of a sudden see what's possible. But to really understand God, you can't get it out of a textbook. You, you can't even just get it out of the printed pages of the Bible. Like there has to be this relational connection. You have to, in order to hear the sound of a whisper, you have to come in close. You have to be near. You, you, you have to turn aside when life is going on and when there's everything buzzing around and you have to tune in to the burning bush that's right there and listen to the to the sound of breathing. Like it's that revelation that's given to Moses that gets the whole thing kick-started. And I think it's so... Amazing that is related to, I think, coming in close and relationship because also the first way God reveals himself to Moses in that moment is he says, and get this, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I had brushed over that phrase for so many years. It's like, it's like one of those words you read or one of those phrases you read in the Bible that's so commonplace that you, you don't really think about it. You don't catch it. You don't get the full gravity of it. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was he doing? He was revealing himself. He knew, he understood that Moses might not know who he is. That Moses had grown up as a prince of Egypt. Moses had been a fugitive murderer runaway. Moses had been scrapping and scrambling for his identity. Moses had been really trying to just, like us, do the best he could and figure this life out. Yet there he is, and he turns aside, and he listens and hears. He pays attention to the burning bush moment that's around him. And God reveals himself through the sound of breathing, the breath, the whisper which means you, you, can't, you can't reduce it. You can't contain it in a word. And he reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reveals himself as the God of people who Moses knew, as the God of his ancestors. He reveals himself, get this, he reduces himself, boils it down to his relationships, to the people that he knew close, to the people that he knew Intimately, like he didn't reveal himself as facts and figures. He revealed himself as, as let's let's be connected. Let's walk together. Let let me shepherd you. Let me father you. Let me let me provide. Let me protect. Let me care. Let me do the things that can't be contained by a word. It's amazing because if you look at Exodus chapter twenty. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, now this is when the 
Ten Commandments. This is when the Decalogue, the Ten Words, I talked about that not too long ago. This is when that whole thing starts getting revealed. And the first phrase is out that God says. It's it's not, hey, I'm I'm the Lord that is omnipotent, all-powerful. It's, it's not, I'm the Lord that's the giant killer. It's not, I'm the Lord who knows everything. It's or omniscience, the big word, you know, we would use for that theologically. It's it's not, I'm the Lord who um, is omnipresent, is everywhere. You know, all, all these, you know, theological mumble jumble that uh, is, is actually probably accurate stuff, right? He doesn't reveal himself through those propositions. He reveals himself in Exodus 20, verse 1 is this. He says, I am the Lord, your God. Like the thing is is somehow shifted, and it's all relationally connected. Like at the beginning of the call of Moses, it is, it, it is, I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm revealing myself through relationship as the father to them. And, and then as the story progresses, okay, as the story progresses, like all of a sudden he comes to know him personally. He comes to know those people personally. And, and it's this essence of if you read the story, you learn that Moses is the one who, who God actually defends People ask the question, they say, well, is Moses the only prophet? You know, is Moses the only one that can hear God's voice? And God says, no, absolutely not. I I have many prophets. Uh, But when I speak to those prophets, I, I speak in riddles and in dreams and in visions, which is something powerful, right? He speaks to his people. He speaks to us in dreams and in visions and in riddles and in burning bush moments all around if we just stop and pay attention, right? I mean, he is always talking. Like, I tell you this, like, we can't even go and watch a movie anywhere, whether it's Wonder Woman or whatever it is, without uh, my wife, without Christy bringing some message from God about it. Like, we're, we're watching Wonder Woman, and she says the most powerful scene in the movie is when she awakens to her identity, and she finally realizes who she really is. And so there are these moments where God is always speaking. There are these moments where He's always talking to us in burning bush moments all around. But the trajectory with Moses is that God defends it and says, yes, when I'm speaking to other people, I speak in burning bush moments and I speak in dreams. I speak in visions. I speak in riddles. And I speak in all these different ways. Like my voice is always out there. Like it, it's always out there like a radio signal, like right where I'm sitting in my attic on the third floor, there are radio waves coming all through. Here. And if I just turn in the receiver and, and get a tuner, and just kind of listen like I can catch these messages that are literally going all around me even now. And God is always speaking that way. However, he says, with Moses, Moses had tapped into that relationship by coming in so close, by stopping what was going on. He says, God says this, he said, when I, when I speak to other people, I speak to them in dreams, visions, right? Amazing ways. But when I speak to Moses, I speak to him face to face as a man knows a man. It is the essence of an overflow of a life that is lived coming in close to comprehend, to understand that name, that, that Again, Rabbi said it was the sound of breathing, which means that 
you and I can't go through life at all, like every single moment, like while I've been saying this podcast, right, and giving you this information, I've been breathing the entire time I've been talking. I've literally been teaching and talking to you and sharing information with you and hopefully imparting some wisdom and revelation to you while the entire time I am breathing and saying the name of God. Right? It means this. It means that when any um, baby is born, the first thing that the baby does is say the name of their creator. It means that the last thing you do when you die is you say the name of the one who gives you life and breath and everything else. It, it means that when an atheist gets on the stage and even argues against God, or when someone gets um, a, a microphone and starts saying God does not exist, they're literally saying God and then saying his name does not, and then they're saying his name exists, and then they're saying his name, confirming that even in their breath of saying he doesn't exist, they are consistently saying his name intertwined all into one. Like he is literally, he's literally that close. Now, that was kind of a long run. Here's, here's where I'm getting at. It was, I had been told, Growing up, and I don't know where I was told this. This is kind of shifting gears, kind of building on the same idea, though. I was told growing up that God couldn't have anything to do with sinners. I was told that He couldn't have anything to do with, even with Adam and Eve, like when they had sinned, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they were evicted from the Garden of Eden because He, their father, couldn't be near them. And if you heard that, you might have grown up with a die idea that God wasn't like a gracious, loving father, you might have grown up with the idea that like he's sitting up. I had this idea when I was growing up that, you know, I kind of envisioned him and I, and I saw him kind of as a, kind of as a youngish, middle-aged guy, um, couldn't really see his face, but, you know, I could definitely see like he had some hair, right? This is, I know this is kind of bizarre, right? Um, but just kind of telling you kind of how I envisioned him, but he's sitting on a throne, kind of like the Abraham Lincoln statue, but not so skinny as Abraham Lincoln. And I couldn't really tell what God had on, but it was definitely kind of this concreteish type of thing. And it's kind of distant. You're looking up at him kind of from a distance so you can kind of see that he's there. Um, definitely not the intimacy of the come in close whisper the name like Moses knew face to face. And I think some of that was kind of birthed out of this idea that I thought, and, and somebody told me, and I know they were doing the best they could with it, right? So certainly I'm very grateful for the background that I had growing up in the church and learning the scripture and the Bible and learning about God and all of that kind of great stuff that I got to do. Some of the greatest memories I have are from growing up uh, in this great church that wasn't perfect, but was was really a great, incredible, amazing foundation with some awesome, awesome relationships. H- had a had a reunion a couple weeks ago, and got to go see some of the people that I grew up with in church world, and w- was just like this kindled this flame, this spark was lit that reminded me just of the grace that God had given me in letting me have that background. That said, at the same time, I, I saw God as this distant, remote person, this, this distant, remote uh, deity that really we couldn't relate to in this intimate kind of way. And I thought that he had kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because he couldn't relate to them any longer because they were in sin. Like somehow the sin was a problem for God and we needed Jesus to come, you know, thousands of years later because that would fix the problem for God and then he could relate to us and he wouldn't be tainted by us. However, you know, 
now and for several years now, I've, I've seen it differently. You know, I look at it differently, view it differently. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves. God didn't hide from them. They hid from him. They are the ones who used to meet with him and walk with him and talk with him in the cool of the evening. And after they sinned, they no longer did that. After they sinned, he had to pursue them. And he did. He still showed up for the meeting. He still showed up to walk with them in the cool of the night and was looking for them and was kind of like, hey, Adam, where, where are you? You're hiding. And then Adam comes out, and not only is he hiding from God, like geographically, he's also hiding in that he's he's sewn these fig leaves together and he's clothed himself with fig leaves. And Eve's clothed herself with fig leaves, things they had made. And, and in his grace, God actually kills, slaughters animals to make them skins, to make them coverings, to make them clothes. And, and I know theologians look at that and say, well, this prefigures the sacrificial system, and, and, and maybe it does. But also, maybe maybe God knew, hey, a couple clothes sewn together out of leaves, they're not, they're not going to last very long. And Adam and Eve had been naked and known no shame, and now they knew and experienced and felt shame. And is it maybe that God's giving them these clothing, not just to prefigure a sacrificial system that's going to you know, cover sin, which it didn't really, because we read in the book of Hebrews that it was impossible, it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin. That's what the Hebrews author says. It's impossible. Like maybe in God, in His grace, was giving them something to cover the shame and said, hey, look, you can come in close and come in close the best that you can. Like you can come in close and um, come as close as you want and come as close as you're able. And you don't need to feel that shame. You see, God continued revealing Himself to them. And He continued interacting with them. Like God revealed Himself outside of the Garden of Eden. The only way we know of anything that we know about creation, the only way we know of anything about even Moses, the only way Moses was able to interact with God was because God continued interacting with people outside the Garden of Eden, even after the fall. He revealed Himself to Cain. He revealed Himself to Abel. He revealed Himself to Cain. Even after the murder, He sought to restore and defend Cain. He revealed Himself to Abraham. He revealed Himself to Abraham, even while he was a a polygamist. God wasn't endorsing the polygamy. He just continued revealing Himself through the story. He continued revealing Himself to Isaac. He revealed Himself to Jacob. He revealed Himself to, eventually, to Moses. Like, He continued pursuing connection. He continued pursuing connection with people. Even amidst sin, even amidst chaos, even amidst destruction, like, our sin wasn't an issue for God. It was an issue for us. God wasn't just trying to restore the relationship. He wasn't trying to, I don't think, have the sacrifice happen so that he could be okay with us. He was in large part doing it so that we could be okay and we could relate to him. Here's what I'm getting at. And here's kind of where I start seeing, sensing, feeling that the gospel is bigger and better than you and I have imagined. It, And it all has to do with this relational thing. Now, I had typically thought that, I had typically thought that um, there are two big ingredients that you need in order to please God. And and in fact, the, the New Testament actually says that. The New Testament actually says that without faith, that's one of them, without faith, it's impossible to please God because, um, well, if you're going to 
um, relate to God, you've got to believe that He exists. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's just right there in the Bible. Hebrews 11 actually says that. Hebrews 11.6. But but here's, here's what I'm starting to see now is the book of Galatians in 5.6. It says that faith actually works by love. Like love is the thing that generates. Love is the thing that creates faith. And I think, by the way, like faith and trust are interchangeable. So here's, here's what I'm saying is, is when you see and sense and feel the love that God has for you, it creates that trust. It creates that faith. Now, lately, just kind of due to some situations that we found ourselves in in a family, we've been doing some family therapy with one of the kids and um, helping them navigate some issues. And, and I've learned through a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor, I'm, I'm not sure actually what the credential is, but the, the lady that's been helping us walk through this is absolutely incredible at what she does, has an expertise in child, uh, gosh, just, just child psychology, has an expertise in understanding how kids should relate to parents and how, how they often do because some of the hurts they have from the past. And so she says that and has taught us about this thing called the trust cycle. And the trust cycle is this. Um, the trust cycle is developed in the first 6 to 12 months of life. And kids learn to trust their parents because when they're very young, when they're infants, when they have a need, they, they you, you know this one if you're a parent, they cry. They express the need that in some way. Now, they can't articulate what that need is. They just kind of cry and get your attention or they or they scream or do something. And, and, and they, they get the cry and it gets your attention and you come in like it's, okay, you get the message like that's the burning bush of a baby is the cry. And you come in and you start just kind of going through well, what is it that they need. And you learn very quickly there's really only about three things they could need. They, they might need to be changed, so you kind of check the diaper. You know, They might be hungry, and so you, know, you realize maybe it's time to take them to mom to be nursed, or maybe it's time to give them a bottle or do whatever it is that you're doing to feed the baby. Um, or if, if those two variables, you, you, you know, know that they couldn't be hungry, we've fed them recently, and it looks like they don't need to be changed, so you kind of learn to kind of peek and lift up the pants right there and, and look and see. Now, you get more skilled at that <laughs> the more kids you have, right? And... Uh, you go through that and you think, well, maybe they just need to be held. Maybe they're just lonely or maybe they're just cold or, you know, it, it's one of those three every time. with your Like if you're not a parent or you're a guy that's about to be a dad, this is a tip for you. Like you need to just realize that when the baby cries, it's generally one of those three. There's only three things that they could possibly need is they, they are hungry, they need to be changed, or they just need to be held. So the baby expresses those needs, and you meet those needs. And as you meet those needs, they sense and feel that they're loved, that they're not alone in the world, and that whenever they have a need, like somehow the goodness in the world, particularly through you, is going to conspire and is to go all in to love and to meet that need. And when they feel loved... When they feel love, trust grows. And when they feel love, they suddenly have this faith that arises in them that they just begin carrying with them that they know you're going to meet the need. Now, this expressed itself 
or, or a breakdown of it expressed itself in one of the adopted boys because when he was younger, he didn't get what my biological kids have gotten is that they, they cry and Christy kicks into gear to meet that need or I kick into gear to meet that need. And, you know, I go through and learn, you know, goodness, okay, are they hungry or, or do they need to have a diaper change or do they just need to be picked up and held and walked around the house, you know, right now? Is it, is it one of those, like, what's, go- what's going on here? And so because of that, you know, it's hard for him to relate to and to trust parents that we had his best need at heart, that we would look after him, that we continue providing for him. And he thought that and he's felt that he's had to meet his needs. And so that is manifest as a lot of, let's just use the word striving. Instead of trusting it's manifest, the overflow of that, the fruit of that, the fruit of the lack of the trust cycle has been striving. It's like he steals food, right? And goes in the kitchen and hoard food and seeks to do anything he can to meet his own needs and manipulates and connives. And, and it happens not, not because he's evil. It happens because he never, when he was younger, felt loved and never learned to trust and have faith. Now, let me kind of wrap around this because I'm just putting all this together. You know, that's a good thing about having a podcast, right? You can kind of think and talk out loud and see if it makes sense and, and get pretty well instant feedback from people. You see, Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But I don't think God's pleased because we manufactured trust. It's his love that creates that cycle, right? It's his love. Like John says, this is love. Not that we loved God. Not, not that we were suddenly awakened and trusted God. This is love that God first loved us. He first overwhelmingly expressed and revealed and met the needs that we had. Sometimes that was just the need to be loved. It was the need of not feeling ashamed for the things that we've done. It was the need of feeling forgiven. It was the need of being physically healed of something, being emotionally set free from something else. It was the need of, and the children of Israel walking out of slavery into freedom. It was the need of Moses who had been on his own, scrambling, scrapping. You know, it was kind of the adopted kid there in, in Egypt. There was now a fugitive running away. It was the need just probably to be noticed. Right, And when he stopped long enough, God calls him and pulls him in close and he feels this love and we start working on this relationship and we start seeing and sensing that there can be trust. That God can be trusted. That, he, that he's a good father. I mean, goodness, like I, I think on some levels I still believe that God is good and simultaneously I am still wrestling with the idea of completely trusting God. Yeah, my kids trust me and your kids trust you because of the relationship, because of the come in close whisper, you can't contain my name and you can't contain everything that I am to you type moments, right? And it's those moments that we need with God. It's those moments that we need with Him, like Moses had these moments with Him. But that faith has to overflow. That faith happens as we grow in relationship. Now, I learned this other one too. Like a second, obedience is essential to also please God. Jesus even says, right, if, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. 
maybe maybe that one happens as this natural overflow of the relationship too, just like faith does. You see, when we receive a revelation of God's love for us, we trust Him. And trust is built on love, and trust is what causes us to obey. Like, these actually fit hand in hand together, okay? Like, Paul Paul says this. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he's just kind of summarizing, you know, and he's kind of talking to people about why he shares the message of grace. And he says this. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels us. So it's like the reason we obey and the reason we share the message of grace is because the love of Christ compels us. That word in the Greek language, compelled, it literally means to be lassoed or be hogtied. Now, growing up in Texas or being a little kid in Texas, I went to several rodeos. They had these rodeos that happen once a year where people in high school, they, they would have these calves that they raise and these bulls that they raise and these horses. And then there'd be this big show at the rodeo at the fair there in Katy, Texas, right outside of Houston. And I remember going and, and seeing these people with their prized animals they'd raised, you know, all year and having them in the show and winning thousands of dollars sometimes through FFA, Future Farmers of America. And I remember watching the rodeos where these people, these cowboys and cowgirls would go on a horse and they would throw out a lasso and they would hogtie a small calf. And when they hogtied it, the calf, the little animal, didn't have a choice. Paul says it's love that hogties us. It's love that compels us, that lassos us. Like so much, so like there's so much love that you have no other choice yet to obey. Like there's so much trust that why, why would you do anything else? Because you know that this heavenly father has your best interest at heart. And like I said, you know, this is a thing where I'm Honestly, I believe it, and I'm still working through it. I believe it, and I'm I'm navigating life just like you. I believe it, and you know it's when the rubber meets the road. It's it's a lot easier to trust when you're sitting in your attic on the third floor overlooking the backyard talking about it, right than when it comes to a moment that actually requires trust. See, my kids wake up and they don't worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, what they're going to do that day. Well, that's not completely true. Sometimes they worry about what we're going to do, right? Are we going to go to the Lego store? Are we going to stay home today? Can we watch a movie today? Can we go to the park? Are we going to, they have all that, but they're, they're not worried about the things that are essential. They're not worried about, are we going to have enough on the table? Like they, they, they just assume when they get up, like it's just a given that the lights are going to be on, that there's going to be power. It's just a given that they're going to get to eat, that they're going to eat. Now get this, like that they're going to eat, you know, when, when they're at home during the day, when they're at school, it's a little different when they're home during the day, like their default method is get up, breakfast, and then immediately a snack. And then a little bit later, another snack. And then eventually lunch. And then a little bit later, a snack. It's like eating is all day. And Jesus, I remember, tells us not to worry about what we'll eat or what we'll drink. Like, will your heavenly Father not care for you? Right? And it's amazing that... Jesus continually in the New Testament draws its back to understanding and saying, hey, if you know how parent-child relationships work, if you, if you know how this trust with the parent and the child works, if you know how this love thing works with the parent and the child, like it's always the parent that's overextending and completely loves the kid. Right. It doesn't matter if my kids mess up. I love them. Right. right? And there, there are these moments, yeah, when my kids, you know, do something right. I don't love them because they obey. 
I love them anyway. They obey because of an overflow of the trust that when I tell them to do something, they've sensed and felt protected and loved that of, of course they obey. Right? Like this is just the world in which we live and this is just the world we've created, right? With each other. And Jesus says, hey, look, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to love your kids, how much more will your heavenly father, right? Love you. And it's that love and it's the experience of that. It's that coming in close like Moses did and seeing, sensing, feeling that allows us to experience the trust, that allows us to experience the, the, the even the, the obedience of like, hey, I can follow through on what you've said because I know that you're good. And I know that you're good because I know your name. The whispered name, the name, the, the one that can't be contained in a word. The one that's got to be revealed through so many words of doing so much life together, of, of seeing and sensing that, yes, you're a deliverer from bondage in Egypt and a deliverer from bondage from this addiction in life now. You are a deliverer from tough relational situations. You are a deliverer from financial just despair. You are a deliverer from this physical infirmity that has rocked my body. You are a healer of these mental and these emotional strongholds that I'm not sure and this anxiety that I didn't know that I could get through. It's it's the name being revealed and whispered through those moments. And it's a revelation of that love that builds and compels great faith and compels, let's just use the word obedience, trusting Him enough to do the things that He says. And um, so in the background right there, there's Salter coming in, walking into the office. Yeah? You there, buddy? And it's probably a good time to land the plane and sign off, knowing that goodness, it's all bigger, it's all better than you think. It's all bigger and better than I think. But it all starts with that that whisper, right? As you go this week, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make His grace and His favor continue to shine upon you. May, may you have these moments where you see, sense, and hear the voice of God, and you stop what you're doing, and you turn aside and go in close. And as you go in close, may He reveal more of Himself to you. May He reveal that goodness, that grace, that favor. And may it be that that causes faith to rise in you. May you see something in your Heavenly Father and His love that creates that faith, knowing that it's not your manufactured faith that pleases him. He's overwhelmed when he senses the relationship and he senses that you feel loved and that you feel loved so much that that trust rises. Yeah? With that, go in peace and in grace. I'll talk to you again soon.